Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. Join us on the journey as we discuss the choices for the Scottish public as we prepare for the referendum. We'll talk about what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host Drew Hendry and I'm also an MP at Westminster. In this episode, I'll be talking to Stuart MacDonald MP about a paper he's released on disinformation. That's fake news, misinformation and all the rest of it. Stuart is the SNP MP for Glasgow South, first elected in 2015, and since 2017 has been the party's front bench spokesperson on defence. He's also a member of the Select Committee on Foreign Affairs, and when Stuart isn't doing politics, he says he enjoys badly playing Elton John songs on his extremely out-of-tune piano and a bit of swimming. Stuart, thank you for joining me in this uh, podcast today. Good to be here, Drew. Or rather, good to have you in my office, I should say. (laughs) We are actually recording this in Stuart's uh, office in Westminster, and uh, where he's been doing a lot of work on, he's reporting to disinformation. Yes. Stuart, you um, produced this report. Uh, What is it about, and why have you produced it now? So it's about, well, the title explains exactly what it is. It's quite literally about uh, disinformation in Scottish public life. It's an assessment of... Uh, some of the various um, actors who are involved in disinformation, uh, foreign and domestic. Uh, And the reason I've chosen to produce it is because I've talked, as you know, Drew, a lot about disinformation over the years. Um, And the report is essentially two parts. One is an assessment of what's going on, and then the other part is what can we do about it? And the what can we do about it part is always the hardest part to answer. So... Given I've talked about it a lot, I thought it was about time I started to put down some thinking, some ideas on what we can do about it. And it, look, it's to the reason for it is to start a discussion. It's by no means a strategy paper. That's way beyond the ability of one member of parliament, and it could never just be done by one politician. But, well, as part of that discussion, obviously, the public would be most uh, attuned to the, the the term fake news, for example, yep. yeah, which is part of disinformation what is what is fake news what is it really and 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 why is it uh, why is it uh, important that people care about it so fake news is a term i actually hate uh, if i'm honest and i try and use it as little as possible because it was popularized by donald trump well it's only become a dictionary term since 2017 even though the actual practice has been around for for hundreds of years yeah so i I prefer to use the term disinformation or misinformation Mm. we can get into the difference Uh, between the two perhaps but I think what what the pandemic has brought home is that this does matter I think previously pre-covid people were kind of aware of disinformation or fake news as as how a lot of people would have understood it but I think it always seemed a bit abstract I I think to be blunt a lot of people thought it was something that happened in America Mm. um, for a long time and I think what the pandemic has done is bring home actually this is very real both before and since we had a vaccine program disinformation especially so during a pandemic, can be deadly. Um, And as we know, if we take it away from the pandemic situation, and I I accept this is a very extreme situation, an extreme example rather, if we compare it to what happened in the US Capitol on January 6th, you know, that's an example of where disinformation leads to radicalization, which leads to a very serious threat. Can you give me an example of, you know, something that was happening there that, that brought that about? 
So, I mean, we could spend ages. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot. We could spend ages talking about that. Talk. But what, what you what you essentially had so was the, the stolen the election thing. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had a disinformation campaign about an election being stolen that ran all the way to the top of the U.S. government. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Mm. Uh, you know, this cocktail of online and offline disinformation that that only had to radicalise a relatively tiny part of the U.S. population when you think about it. That led to an insurrection on the Capitol, uh, people being injured, people being killed, uh, and a full-on assault to to an election result. Uh, so this isn't something that's abstract. It's not something that only happens in America. There are other examples of how disinformation has led to, if not necessarily a full-on assault on democratic structures, but have led to riots, distrust. Uh, of fellow citizens, of, of national institutions, uh, in a way where it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. One of the earlier examples uh, would be the riots in Tallinn in Estonia in 2007, uh, which I won't go into all the detail of, but it's, it's one of the closer to home European examples of why disinformation, if you don't deal with it, if you don't equip people with the tools to recognise it, can get out of hand in a really dangerous, dangerous way. And that lot of that disinformation obviously is transferred through social media. Yeah. Do, do you believe that the social media companies are doing enough um, to combat this? Indeed, what should they be doing? Uh, no, uh, they're not. Um, and, you know, there's again, this is a whole discussion we could have in itself, Drew, where social media companies see themselves uh, not as... You know, they're not like newspapers, for example. They don't produce the stories that are on their platforms. They are platforms and not publishers. Um, I would contest that. Uh, in terms of how you deal with this, not to go too technical, no one country can do this alone. What this is going to require is for largely the democratic countries in the world to come together to build the rules around this. Um, if I can use a phrase that, um, that might send a shiver up a lot of people's spines, a coalition of the willing to deal with this. You know, you can't have Europe running one set of rules and the US running a different set and Canada running a different set and the UK running a different set because the people who benefit from that are the social media companies and those who want to use social media platforms to disinform. So we need to come together. We need international rules, whether that's a treaty or, or whatever. Who knows that debate is still to be had. But so long as we all try and do a patchwork approach to this, as is happening at the minute, we will be forever manipulated and that certainly doesn't but, benefit the uh, public. And that patchwork approach is part of the issue that you've been raising in the paper. You know, you said you wanted to start a discussion on this. There hasn't really been a lot of... Uh, there's been some moaning in the, from yep. the sidelines and some griping about the fact that this happens, but there's been no real action being taken, has there? So I think in the absence of that, uh, and you're right, there's no major action has been taken. There's been some around the around the edges. And look, this is a big project, right? I'm not. I'm not... I'm not suggesting this is easy or can be done quickly if it's going to be done properly. It, it, it can't be. But I think in the absence of that, what my paper looks at is, well, what can we, how can we help the end user? How can we help the, the, the targets of the disinformation? And the targets of the disinformation are your constituents and my constituents. Uh, how do we help build up that information resilience so when people see garbage, they can recognise it's garbage? And the different ways that you do that. Well, of, of course, in the, the paper you refer to accusations being made about Russian meddling in the 2014 independence referendum in Scotland and, of course, the 26 EU referendum. What have you got to say about, about that? So the if we take the independence uh, question first, which is obviously going to be highly relevant to 
a lot of your listeners. The, if we go back to the Intelligence and Security Committee's Russia report from last year, uh, it refers to credible open source uh, commentary that there was some um, there was some interference. Admittedly, that if you actually read the footnote for that, it refers to interference after the vote had taken place. So that was all about trying to distort uh, what people thought of the result, as opposed to anything that tried to impact the result pre-referendum day. And it's important to make that distinction. Now, some people will say, well, it's only open source uh, commentary. That's true. Um, I happen to have looked at the open source commentary and it's, it's entirely credible. Uh, it does seem to have had a negligible impact. Uh, that being said, you know, there's polling that has been done that has shown that up to 40% of people in Scotland don't believe either the indie ref, Brexit referendum, or indeed subsequent general elections have been free or fair. Now, you think about that for a minute. If you're a, if you're a hostile uh, state or, or a non-state actor, and you know that 40% of people in the country don't think that elections are free or fair, what an enormous opportunity yeah, but get, can, to get involved there. Can this type of interfere, interference really determine or influence the results of votes or elections? For that's not always the point. And I think yeah. that's sometimes where people get, you know, I get this all the time. Oh, well, you know, Russia must want to help the Nats because, you know, that would be, that would be in their interests. Well, I get why people say that. I don't buy it. Uh, I think often, and if we take the Russian example, it's not that they're trying to deliver a certain outcome. It's that they want to sow as much chaos and confusion as possible because ultimately what Putin and his uh, government wants is for people in his country to see that democracy is actually pretty messy. And it's in his interest for his population, as far as he is concerned, to see democracy failing or being problematic or leading to riots and insurrections as we saw in the US capital. So it's not the case that the Kremlin wants Scottish independence and so involves itself in our democratic mechanisms to achieve a certain outcome. It's all about creating chaos and creating confusion. Because I would actually challenge as well, you know, that I think the last thing an authoritarian government wants is another small independent country in the EU, in NATO, in the UN, voting against the annexation of Crimea, promoting human rights and the rule of law, all of which are anathema to and to promoting democracy, of course. Yes, indeed, yep. indeed. Oh, so you mentioned Russia there, and uh, we know that there is uh, some some real action in terms of cyber warfare mm. um, from there. Do you believe that this disinformation goes hand in hand with cyber warfare? Yes. So if we again, um, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, this is all part of a broader um, hybrid warfare. Um, output, we would call it. So hybrid warfare is, is where you don't engage militarily. It's below, below the kind of threshold for a, a traditional kinetic war, uh, but it involves other means and disinformation, cyber attacks uh, are all a big, big uh, part of that. It's been, you know, I would just say to anyone, look at what the Russians have done in Ukraine, look at what they have done in Georgia, look, look at what they do in other parts of Central and Eastern Europe, which is where they test things to then try out in the UK and France and the US and take it that bit, take it that bit further. So, absolutely yes, it's integral to a, a broader cyber or hybrid warfare uh, posture that these countries want to adopt. And these are where the threats are these days. Uh, and it's why you and I, 
uh, don't think spending all the billions on nuclear weapons is going to help well, us I was where to, the conflict actually is. I was going to come to that because you've said in the paper that disinformation campaigns allow hostile foreign states to discreetly target and influence citizens while remaining below the threshold of war. Yeah. But, but this, you know, this type of activity really is uh, an attack. Um, and as you've just said, the, the, uh, the fact that we might be spending uh, hundreds of billions of pounds on nuclear weapons, a redundant uh, defence system, uh, is, is the wrong approach, isn't it? Yeah, so, what, I mean, look, you have to have what we have always supported it, uh, has been you know, robust conventional uh, defences, not nuclear weapons. Uh, but also we have to look at the threats as they evolve and the threats that come in the future. And this is very much a threat of the present that is only going to be with us as we go further and further into the future. And as you look around Europe, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Baltic states and others, this is an area where, whether you're in NATO or not in NATO, this is an area where our fellow European countries spend more and more of their time thinking about as far as their own domestic security posture goes. And crucially, the alliances that they join. Okay, well, let, let's come closer, closer to home then. It, you know, in terms of Westminster, in terms of the UK government, mm. how have they responded to these clear threats that are coming through now? So it's incredible that the, you know, the UK spends so much money on defence and security, and yet we still have a case where you know, none of the recommendations from the Russia report have been implemented. Um, that was a much-delayed Russia yeah, report. Yeah, of course, much, yeah, much-delayed Russia report, and our colleague Alan Smith is part of a group mm -hmm. taking the UK government to court to force them to implement that. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the UK, you know, what's wrong with the way they respond to these things? Responsibility for responding to um, disinformation or, or other hybrid non-military threats lies all over government. It's a combination of FCO, MOD, DCMS, the intelligence services. It, 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 it's all over the place. And what the Russia report identifies correctly is that that needs to be streamlined uh, because at the end of the day, if, if, if you're a country that is uh, targeted by another state for a disinformation campaign or a cyber attack or whatever it is, they will know your weak spots. And I think just having the responsibility for countering these types of threats lying in so many different bits of government that don't talk to each other half the time, that is a, that's a weak spot that is there to be exploited. So. When I look around at how other countries deal with this, if we take, for example, um, if we take for example the the Finns, Finland, you know, a, a country that is in the European Union but not in NATO, uh, they have an ambassador for countering hybrid threats. So that's a single office in government responsible to the prime minister, who not only coordinates all of government strategy to respond to hybrid threats, and that that's everything: cyber, pandemics whatever it might be, when you need all of the arm of government, all of the different arms of government to come together to respond to these types of events, you have one office coordinating those mm. things, as opposed to what we have in the UK at the minute, which is the MOD doing a bit, the FCO doing a bit, security services doing another bit, and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. the, the coordinating structure just is not there. And as you said, DCMS, which is the Department for the Digital Culture, Media, Media and Sport, Sport. Yeah. Um, on there, just for listeners who might not have uh, heard that yeah. term before. Uh, so those uh, bodies are not working together in tandem. In they don't work well together. I mean, look, this isn't easy, right? I mean, the UK, when you think of the bureaucracy of, of, of Whitehall, it's, a, it's an enormous tank. 
Um, I would argue that in terms of how you respond to threats like this, it's just not working. It's not fit for purpose. Mm. And look, I say this as well, Drew. If we had voted yes in 2014 and were a happy neighbour with England, it's not in our interest for our nearest neighbour who we share an island with to get this wrong. It's the kind of thing that when you're in alliances, whether it's NATO, the European Union, uh, PESCO, whatever it might be, when you're in alliances, you can't have weak spots. So it's in everybody's interest, whether you support independence or don't support independence, it's in everybody's interest for the UK or, or for London to get this right. Well, you know, you, you said that if we're independent or not, we're clearly arguing that we'd be better off as an independent uh, country. Yes. That's where, where we come from. So let me ask the question, what should an independent Scotland do uh, to combat these threats? What, what would they be the first actions that you'd recommend? So I think that we we have to change the whole, and I'd love to come back and talk about this, we have to change the whole defence posture. You know, there's a very kind of Anglo-American defence posture that the UK subscribes to, which is about kit and tanks and aircraft carriers and all the rest of it. And that has its place if that's the posture you want. Uh, I don't think that would suit a country like Scotland, Scotland's size and, and what it would reasonably want to do in terms of defending itself or achieve elsewhere. So I think what we need is a, is a bit like the Swedes do, a whole of society approach where how you respond to a pandemic is just as important as to how you respond to um, an attack on your critical national infrastructure, uh, a physical kinetic military invasion, whatever it might be, where health and human security uh, are absolutely wedded into your broader national security posture that involves policing, counter-terrorism, uh, you know, how you, how you uh, structure your military, what your navy is doing and all the rest of it. Having the whole of society approach when you're a country as, as big as Scotland is, is what will be really, really critically important. So I think breaking away from a very old-fashioned Anglo-American um, view of how, you, how do you meet your threat picture would be one of the one of the best things uh, that an independent Scotland can do. There are plenty of models to learn from. Well, just talking about those models, you mentioned Finland. Yep. You know, and so are there other examples of uh, you know similar sized independent countries to Scotland that are doing a good job of this? Yeah. So if you take um, another example, if you take Sweden. Uh, Sweden have got the Civil Contingency Authority. You know, they're there to deal with again all kinds of things like shock weather events cyber attacks whatever they might be within that authority only i think two maybe three years ago now uh, they set up a specific office for countering disinformation because if you have a pandemic if you have let's say there's an attack on your uh, other critical national infrastructure like your water supply or your electricity supply it's the perfect attack surface for a disinformation campaign and what's the one thing we've learned over the course of covid how the state communicates and communicates well with its citizens is the difference between people living or dying. So I think that there are elements we can learn from Sweden, elements we can learn from Finland, elements we can learn from Denmark, uh, whereby we can create a defence posture that firstly does what it has to do, which is meet the threats that an independent Scotland will face, but secondly isn't tied to a very old-fashioned way of thinking where we're spending billions on nuclear weapons that just aren't suitable 
in terms of the threats of the modern age. Okay, well, we're going to be uh, approaching an independence referendum in Scotland yep. uh, again. In the run-up to our independence referendum, what are the most important things that both the public and governments can do to uh, ensure greater access to the truth rather than uh, misinformation or even, as you've been pointing out, disinformation? So some of the recommendations I make uh, in the paper are, you know, how do you build that resilience amongst your population? Absent of any major international agreements on how you deal with social media companies and uh, other kind of foreign broadcast networks like Russia Today or Sputnik, how do you help the public out with this stuff? Um, So I think what we need firstly is is an audit of Scotland's information ecosystem. What, what is the reach of disinformation on social media in Scotland? We need an audit of that. Um, what, do, how, what is the reach of broadcasters like Russia Today? What, what exactly are Confucius Institutes doing to the ecosystem in Scotland? I think we need a, a commissioner for countering Sorry, disinformation. just for those listening, what's a Confucius Institute? Probably a whole podcast again, Drew. <laughs> uh, so the Confucius Institutes are, Scotland has, uh, I think I'm right in saying this is still the case, the highest proportion of Confucius Institutes of any country in the world. They are sponsored by the Chinese government. They appear as if they are, for example, like the Goethe Institute of Germany or the British Council to promote culture and all the rest of it. In truth, they suppress, um, they suppress debate on a lot of issues that are sensitive uh, to the Chinese government, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, Tibet, Taiwan, these types of things. Sweden is the only European country so far that's actually closed all their Confucius Institutes mm-hmm. down. We haven't even so much as so had a review so in, of them. So in terms of that discussion, that uh, debate we have up to a referendum, you think it'd be important to identify those as part of the... I think what you want, as I say, a full spectrum audit, what is the situation in Scotland? You know, my paper's very much a small starting point. It requires greater resource than I could give it. So you want to do that, and then you want to work out how do we build up the information resilience? How do you make sure so that when you know garbage appears on people's Facebook feeds or in WhatsApp chats that they might be in or whatever, people know how to fact-check things and fact-check things quickly? And if I could quickly give you one example of why this matters. You remember, Drew, at the start of the pandemic when we, we weren't quite in lockdown yet, but we all knew something was coming. And all these rumours were flying wildly all over the place about, you know, the army were, they were amassing on Strathclyde Park, which was the area near to me. And that was at a time when we were starting to run out of food supplies. Fresh food was not easily available. Toilet paper, if you remember, was hard to get. Soap was hard to get. I think people will remember those pictures of the, in fact, probably saw those empty shelves for uh, All the empty shelves. And what we had at the time were, were, People saying that the army were amassing in places, which was, you know, the army being in the streets out of the blue is never a good sign. That contributing to panic. And the photographs that were being used, or one one of the photographs I remember seeing, there were several, to tell people this was happening, were actually pictures of the Spanish Red Cross. Driving on the wrong side of the road for a start, very clearly a Red Cross vehicle. But people just see things and, you know, go back again to that two weeks before lockdown. Mm panic was palpable and if you have a situation where people are panicked and you can easily manipulate them and you can cause food shortages and I'm not saying that that one conspiracy theory contributed to them all of course not Um, that would be absurd to see but what you need is to build that information resilience so people can respond calmly the state can get facts to its citizens and cut through trash I'm trying not to swear here you can probably tell (laughs) you're doing a good job and, and and just build up 
you know, build up that literacy training, information literacy training in key sectors, and think of who can do this. You know, our own party and other political parties are unique in bringing together people from all walks of life. Trade unions do the same. Big membership organisations, faith groups, for example, where we could all be voluntarily teaching each other on how to recognise disinformation or misinformation. Let's have a day every year where the Scottish Government, uh, through its various public bodies and agencies, things like the National Library, you could get local authorities to do things in schools about countering disinformation, a bit like what happens in, in Singapore, for example. Well, indeed, actually, the Scottish Government did put out an education paper on yep. COVID mis uh, disinformation back in October 2020. So you're suggesting more action like Let's that. have more. And then one of the, I think one of the big things, you know, no government as of yet has actually established itself as the leader in the fight against disinformation. There are lots of good lessons we can take from around the world. I'd like to see us establish ourselves as a leader in that. And let's have an annual, you know, an annual clean information summit where we bring together all of the experts from different countries, governments, where, you know, let's bring them to Edinburgh once a year and, and learn from each other who does what that works. And as I say, absent of the big international treaties you're going to need to deal with in particular social media, what we can do is build up that resilience to the end user, your constituents and my constituents, okay. to make sure that they don't fall victim to disinformation. Final question then. You've just painted a picture of what we could do, um, what Scotland should be doing in the run up to the independence referendum, what we could do as an independent uh, country in order to tackle this. Uh, do you think that we'd be able to achieve that staying in the uh, UK as it is at the moment? No. And you know the thing I would say here, Drew, like this is a threat whether we're in the UK or not in the UK, right? We face it now today. Uh, and my discussion paper, quite correctly, uh, in my view, and some might criticise me for this, comes to no view on, on the constitution. This is a threat we face now. And I think that what's required immediately is for UK, Scottish, Welsh, Northern Ireland, uh, governments to come together and think about how we can work best to tackle that. This needs to be uh, a priority and it needs to be above the normal uh, party politics. But the current UK model, I mean, take for example, the, the when the Russia report came out and it said that there was um, credible open source commentary on Russian meddling in the IndyRef and then it also talked about the Brexit referendum, the government would neither confirm nor deny these things. Now, if the government would at least lay down a, a statement to Parliament every six months or a year, a bit like it does with the regular counter daesh statements, that outlines to the public, here is the current disinfor disinformation threat picture that we all face uh, across the UK, that would at least add a layer of transparency that currently isn't there. And where you don't have that, that's how you end up with 40% of voters in Scotland thinking that their elections aren't free or fair. So I don't think the UK is ready to change its model. I wish it would, because even if we were already independent, it's in our interests that they get this right. But is it a fact that if we had the power to do this ourselves, we'd be able to do it and do it well and do it quicker? Yes. Stuart MacDonald, I think we'll end it there, but thank you very much indeed for your time on uh, you. this podcast. So there we have it. What to consider over disinformation in the run-up to a referendum. It's clear that Westminster isn't designed to do anything about it or particularly wants to do anything about it. But there is an opportunity for an independent Scotland to make better and different choices. 
My thanks again to Stuart MacDonald MP. You can read his paper by downloading it from the latest news section at stuartmacdonald.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. My thanks for listening, and don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Thank you.